0: welcome to inspire me I am your host Rachel Goodman here on this podcast we'll be interviewing several of my fellow peers to discuss their career paths and professional goals I think this is going to be an amazing way to connect with some of you who might not be so clear on what career major or passion you want to pursue I also want to shine light on the remarkable innovative path this current generation has carved out for themselves and give credit to those who are truly beginning to accomplish incredible things This COVID-19 pandemic has severely impacted the current job market and the way we approach finding and applying to potential job opportunities. On this podcast, you will get to hear from young adults actively in the midst of kickstarting their careers. Each episode will focus on a different industry and field. On this first episode, we will discuss the pre-medical track and the process of applying to medical schools. Today, I am joined with my longtime best friend, Paul Soden, who recently just graduated from the pre-med program at the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Thank you so much for joining me, Paul. Hi,
1: Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah so i just graduated in may 2021 with a bachelor of science from cornell university where i studied human biology health and society and minored in biomedical sciences and human development and i'm currently doing research at boston children's hospital on a disease called hydrocephalus and on the role of cerebrospinal fluid in neurological development and on the brain's function i've developed sort of three core areas of interest in neuroscience maternal fetal medicine and public health. And I'm hoping to combine those three passions in the future by pursuing a career in pediatric neurosurgery.
0: That's amazing. Can you tell me more about these key experiences you had in college that solidified these three areas of interest of yours?
1: Yeah, so my air, my interest in neuroscience stretches way back to middle school and, and high school, and I actually did a science research program in high school. I was studying the effects of stimulant versus non-stimulant medications on the academic behaviors of children with ADHD. This study showed me both that I was really passionate and excited about neuroscience, but also that... There were other variables that needed to be taken into account when studying medicine and and biology. There's not only the biology, the the underlying neuroscience, but there are also social variables that can influence um, how patients respond to medications, how patients are diagnosed, what patients are diagnosed. And that really led me to developing an appreciation for the multidisciplinarity of medicine. And so that's why I chose to apply to specifically Cornell's College of Human Ecology whose really unique pre-medical program uh, allowed me to study health from not only a biological perspective or a chemical perspective, but also through socioeconomic, psychological, political lenses. I also had a couple of key research experiences that really solidified my interest in neuroscience. So for example, I worked on a brain tumor project, research project um, through an internship at Massachusetts General Hospital one of the summers. I was there. Um, Another summer, I worked as a clinical intern at the New York Institute for Special Education, where I got some real hands-on experience that complemented the research experience that I was getting um, and was really rewarding and showed me that the clinical pathway was was really something I was interested in pursuing. Um, I I did some research on autism spectrum disorder, um, specifically um, applying contemporary neurocognitive models to try to understand autistic crisis behaviors and autistic aggressive behaviors. I also did some work on the glymphatic system, or the glial lymphatic system, which is essentially how the brain clears waste from from, um, the brain tissue during sleep, it's it's primarily active during sleep. I did some research on that, and then um, also more recently I've been doing some work on reproductive immunology, um, and specifically trying to understand some immunological events that happen at the maternal-fetal interface during pregnancy that might predispose developing fetuses to neurodevelopmental disorders like autism. So those are that's just a very broad overview of some of the stuff I've been up to.
0: That's so interesting. I love that multidisciplinary approach to studying health. I think that's so important. And you mentioned working at MassGen. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you were able to get that research opportunity and the research you did there? Yeah,
1: definitely. So. Something I'll I'll say to anyone who's interested in, in doing research or, or being pre-med in college, some of the, the research internship programs for over the summer can be very competitive and it can be very difficult to get them. One strategy that I used to try to help myself stand out was actually just sending cold emails to people. You know, it's important to apply to established programs as well, but also just how I got my internship at Mass General was just sending cold emails that were Concise but thoughtful in all different fields because you know it's really hard to stand out in a stack of cover letters, but when you personally email someone when you've clearly done your homework and are very concisely articulating some of their work, why you're passionate about their work and how, you know, working in their lab or in another field, how working with them uh, might it help advance your career.
0: Yeah, of course. Do you typically keep those emails like short and sweet? I know a lot of people have told me to do that or kind of delve into why you're passionate and why their work
1: really compels you do some research on the publications from this lab and and very concisely in like a sentence or two describe a recent publication and how how why you're interested in it how an opportunity in in their lab could potentially help you along your career path. And then very quickly talk about some of your qualifications, maybe in a sentence or two, and attach, what I would do is just attach my resume and say like, I would be more than happy to talk about this opportunity in in like a, a Zoom meeting or, or some sort of meeting in the future, um, and leave it at that. And then leave it to the interview to talk about, to really go in depth about why you're so passionate, just getting your foot in the door, um, does not require really lengthy emails.
0: Usually that that annoys people. <laughs> how do you find their emails and contact information? Because that's something that I've really struggled with when people tell me, have you tried reaching out to so and so? Like, or you know, even naming like really influential people in a respective field? Like how do you find their contact
1: information? No, that's such an awesome question. No one really tells you how to do these things. <laughs> You're sort of on your own yeah, at the beginning. No. So Literally, what you have to do is just if you're if you're looking in the research field, every lab will have their own website um, with a list of both their publications, but also the PI or the principal investigator who's the head of the lab, uh, his or her contact information, along with the contact information of other people in the lab. So usually there will, there will always be an email, sometimes a phone number. It took me years to I wish I had learned that that this was something that pe- people do and that is effective sooner um because once i started doing it i really started advancing and getting places just taking
0: that chance i think and step is super like i think that's just the most important thing you can do i agree yeah so can you tell me more about your research at MassGen? i know we got a bit sidetracked but um i think your research on glioblastoma and developing new immunology therapy treatments are so fascinating. Yeah. So just a, for a broad overview, I was working on a, with
1: some of the postdoctoral researchers who all have their PhDs and who are just full-time researchers there. So I was working with a couple of them on their studies. And without going into too much detail, in one of the studies, I was working primarily with mice. So what we did was we got patient samples of, first of all, glioblastoma is a type of brain tumor. So what our lab was doing was getting um, patient samples of the tumor, so cancer cells from actual patients that neurosurgeons at the MassGen hospital were removing. And then what we were doing is we were taking immunocompromised mice, which don't have an immune system, so they can't recognize those patient cells as foreign, so they can't attack them and we were injecting them into the the mouse's brain and developing a glioblastoma in that mouse so that we could have a model of glioblastoma. And then we would just test different therapeutics that the lab was developing. I primarily was learning how to make these models and stuff like that, and, and learning about the logistics of how to run an in vivo, meaning in a ma- mouse model. And then also I was doing some in vitro work, which essentially just means cells in a dish. So we were taking those patient samples um, and culturing them in like in dishes, so instead of injecting them into mice, and then also doing some some drug trials, and also trying to study the role of different compounds that are typically in the brain, so neurotransmitters and stuff like that, on the growth and and survival of cancer cells.
0: How how did this experience at MassGen and that research help clarify your path for everything that you wanted to pursue? What I'll say is I've I've had my heart set
1: on this particular field since I was very little. I've always been very drawn to neurosurgery in general and and just neuroscience. So I I definitely, it was a reaffirming experience because I, you know, it reaffirmed just how fascinated I was in this. And I also forgot to mention that I was fortunate enough to be able to shadow some of the neuro-oncologists who worked at Mass General, who worked with actual patients with glioblastoma, with astrocytomas, and then some other congenital defects, um, congenital disorders that are associated with tumors of the nervous system. You know, it was just, it was fascinating. One thing that it it really did do was sort of spark my interest in research. I, I had been doing research for some time, both in high school and in other labs at Cornell, but like this experience in particular just showed me how, how meaningful it can be and how, translatable, some of the results can be into therapeutics. So it's sort of sparked my passion for research, I would say. What is it that you're super interested, what's the ultimate goal here? You know, that's a great question. And this definitely might change. I, I won't say this is set in stone, but for a while now, I've been particularly interested in cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that bathes the brain and the spinal cord. Um, and it's, it's literally like a water-like fluid and no one really knows about it in the in like lay people in general but also like in the scientific community for a long time the csf was just sort of ignored <laughs> or or like the neural circuits in the brain were primarily studied i'm very interested in both in the basic science of like how the csf contributes to brain function in general but then on the clinical side also disorders um, that involve dysfunction of cerebrospinal fluid circulation through the brain. So my ultimate goal for, for right now, what I'm really passionate about doing in the future, is uh, specializing in treating congenital conditions that involve disruptions of cerebrospinal fluid um, circulation within the brain. Because of that interest, I've been drawn to a couple of different research experiences. So the, the work I'm doing now at Boston Children's Hospital is in a lab that, that really specializes in you know both in hydrocephalus and in the role of cerebrospinal fluid you know i love the clinical side but it's also frustrating because for all of the things that we do know and for all of the breakthroughs that we have had in medicine there are also so many things that we don't know and so many diseases that we can't treat like glioblastoma and and even hydrocephalus the treatments are not very are not very good for the condition right now and so that that is frustrating, I can imagine. I definitely am trying right now. That's primarily why I'm doing this research experience before medical school. I'm trying to figure out the role that I want research to play in my career. I definitely want it to play some role, but do I want to run a lab? What kind of research do I want to do? Basic science research, which is what you were saying, like trying to figure mm-hmm. out really the biology of the system? Or do I wanna do what's called translational science research, which is translating that basic science research into novel therapeutics? Or do I wanna do clinical research, which is literally testing those therapeutics in human patients and reporting back to the, the, both the FDA potentially and to um, the, the translational labs?
0: I'm so interested in your autism research and I know you have a younger brother that's autistic. And I was just wondering, To what extent does your personal life and interests influence what you get to read? My interest in neuroscience isn't influenced that much by my personal life. I've just
1: always just genuinely been so drawn to it. But my Mm -hmm. interest in autism definitely has been shaped by my own personal experiences. In particular, um, I'm very, I've experienced, as I've experienced firsthand, um, one of the most distressing uh, symptoms that is associated with autism is um something called autistic meltdowns they're not really clinically called meltdowns but in like lay lay terms um essentially like they're what we would call colloquially tantrums but they're not really mm-hmm. tantrums in the sense that the patient isn't like intentionally throwing the tantrum it's not like an intentional thing it's completely uncontrollable and um there's very there's been very little research into it, to it, so I'm hesitant to to say specific like details, but it's typically associated with um, activation of what's called the sympathetic nervous system, which is controls our flight or fight response. So, in in some in trying to summarize that all in a sentence, um, I've seen cl- up close and personal that it's extremely distressing to deal with um, a, a family member who you love who for reasons that are out of their control are throwing this this tantrum in public for no apparent reason. You know, as I became trained in science, I tried to look through the literature and figure out if there has been any research on this, and there definitely is research on trying to develop proactive methods and like wearable technologies to try to soothe and prevent meltdowns, but there's really never been any basic science research going back to a term I used earlier I'm trying to figure out the neurological pathways that are responsible for these fight or flight responses. You know, there are, there's definitely research showing that autistic individuals have, um, have sensory hyper and hyposensitivities, meaning like they're much more sensitive to, um, to sensory stimuli than, than neurotypicals. Clothes in a lot of cases, like clothes that are too tight that we would normally just like that, Neurotypicals would normally just be able to ignore. Autistic individuals sometimes can, that can be very distressing. A flickering light that a neurotypical might be able to filter out and, and an autistic individual might not necessarily be able to do so. Music that's too loud, people that are speaking too loudly. Each like individual will have their own set of hypersensitivity triggers, which is probably why there hasn't been much research into the area. Cause it's such a complicated, like no one knows what, what causes certain people to have certain triggers, certain people to, to have other triggers. But the main thing that, you know, there's been research into the the sensory hypersensitivities. And the the key thing is like, exposure to these triggers like exposure to fireworks is known to induce meltdown like states mm-hmm. but there's really been no research into the neuro- neurological pathways for like why like we can we can rationalize that as as you can imagine like if you were exposed to a really really ne- loud noise constantly i'm sure you would probably have a reaction that's similar yeah, to a course. meltdown too but the neurologic, like the 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 brain pathways that actually are responsible for that. No one's really done much research into it. So that was the primary goal of, of some of my autism research at Cornell.
0: You talked about how, you know, social interactions are extremely unpredictable and that can be really difficult for autistic people.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because actually um, my research is focused on applying something called predictive coding theory to understand mm-hmm how autistic meltdowns might be proceeding specifically predictive coding theory is just what you were saying it's sort of a neurocognitive theory in the field that says that we generate internal models of the world and we make predictions based up like predictions about the sensory information that we're going to be gathering from our eyes and ears and nose and we compare those predictions to the incoming information and the there are currently predictive coding accounts of autism out there that have been developed in the past couple of years that argue that autistic individuals you know i won't get into the specifics of because there's still a debate about what side is it is there an issue with the predictions is there an issue with how the sensory information is coming up but they rely much more on the sensory data coming in rather than on those top-down predictions. The model explains why it's very difficult for autistic individuals sometimes to go into uncertain situations because they're only relying on the bottom-up sensory information that they're gathering rather than on predictions and prior information that they have in, in in their brain from from the past. So social situations are an example of of a situation that's very unpredictable and if you as you can imagine, if you didn't have many prior experiences to you know and prior predictions to be essentially to be um, guiding that experience, it, it would make it very stressful and difficult, which is why, autism has been framed as a a social disorder inherently.
0: I really wanted to get to your research on maternal fetal medicine because I find that so fascinating. So can you give me a quick overview on what you're doing there? Yeah, definitely. So again, um, the research
1: has to do with autism as well. Um, For a really long time, you know, an interest in neuroscience often comes with an interest in development because the development of neurological pathways happens during pregnancy, during infancy, and during early childhood, um, which is why my human development major came so in handy. And so I've always been really fascinated about the role of maternal physiology and maternal health in neurological development um, during pregnancy. How this project started actually was, I was in a maternal child nutrition class um, at Cornell, and I, we had to write a term paper for the class. I also have an immunology background, so my minor in biomedical sciences included quite a bit of immunology coursework. In my immunology classes that I had taken before, I learned quite a bit about reproductive immunology, which is essentially the idea that a fetus, a developing fetus inside a mother, um, it contains paternal components, meaning like components from the father, cellular uh, components, that technically should be recognized by the mother's immune system as foreign but there's this whole field of liter- of, of research devoted to the fact that the fetus is not recognized as foreign like a, a transplanted kidney or transplanted liver might be. For nine months the fetus is allowed to grow so I, I found that a really interesting perspective and I always kept that in the back of my mind and there are specific immune cells in the placenta you know this is an emerging area of research so uh, there's it's un still unclear as to how the immune system exactly does that, but there are um, a couple of key immune systems, such as uterine natural killer cells, as an example, that are in the placenta that play an important role in that at that maternal fetal interface from, you know, facilitating placental development, preventing the immune system from attacking the fetus, and just coordinating pregnancy events overall, and so. Get with that in mind, that was sort of the experience, the the knowledge I was going into the maternal child nutrition class with. And in the nutrition class, um, we had to write a term paper. And I, I was kind of racking my, my head for ideas for, you know, creative ideas about how I would explore some issue in maternal child and nutrition, potentially from my neuroscience background or from my immunology background. There's an association between... Uh, maternal obesity and autism risk so it, it's been correlated that mothers who are obese are more likely to give birth to a child who goes on to develop autism um, than compared to lean women and also the 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 problem is that there aren't really many like mechanisms to explain why that is what's happening there what's the what's the rationale for why why that's happening and um, so where my sort of pro- my term paper came in was I took that reproductive immunology background and I did a literature review and I f- realized that there are a couple of similarities between obesity between a, a couple of other um, maternal conditions in which there's chronic inflammation. I developed like a conceptual framework to understand. Um, how potentially we could frame the relationship between maternal obesity and autism as an underlying inflammation in the placenta and and try to, you know, see what the molecular similarities between the placenta of mothers with obesity, cytomegalovirus
0: infection, and preeclampsia was. So at the beginning, you were saying there was a lot of research linking um, women's loss of their fetus to the inability for the woman's body to recognize the fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's so interesting. And you said that could be potentially partner-specific as well. This
1: field of research is absolutely fascinating. There have been studies showing that women who have um, recurrent uh, spontaneous abortions, it might be that the mother is developing an immunological reaction to paternal antigens that's partner-specific. There's been some very interesting epidemiological evidence showing that the maternal immune response to a fetus might be partner specific in that the mother's immune system might be recognizing specific markers on the fetus that are from from the, the father.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. And just to wrap up here. So um, can you just briefly take me through what your path is going to be, your ideal path? So what you're doing now and going forward, applying to medical schools, taking the MCAT, residencies all that. Can you just briefly take me through that um, for, you know, younger people that are aspiring to become a physician or doctor and, you know, might not be so clear on what the path entails? Starting in high school, if you're interested generally in
1: in the pre-medical track, I would start right away with a science research program. That experience was really helpful in establishing my interest in um, science and research and in giving me the tools that I needed to uh, to do more advanced research in college. So I'd start right away with that and also potentially volunteering. I, like I volunteered in a hospital in high school and that was really helpful. And then throughout college, um, I, you know, pursued very specific clinical opportunities um, that, that were interesting to me. For example, I did that New York Institute for Special Education clinical opportunity in my first summer after freshman year and there i was able to interact with a a number of different children who had a number of different conditions for like autism like um i I met with children who had brain tumors who had um congenital um neurological deficits who were blind because of glaucoma a, a variety of different things And that really helped set up all of my future research experiences because it showed me the clinical conditions that I was interested in. And then I pursued research opportunities that were specific to those. So I did brain tumor research the next summer. I've done lots of autism research. I I also, Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about it today, but I also did some work on glaucoma. I think having like a a key clinical experience to inform the diseases that you want to study further through research, I think that was very helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. But on a more high-level path, obviously also trying to get involved in leadership opportunities um, and stuff like that, that that you're very genuinely interested in. So, for example, I talked about the multidisciplinary perspective on health and, and, and medicine earlier. So I didn't just want to have the, this bio, biological experience. And one extracurricular that I've that I've done over the past couple of years is I developed a, um, a nonprofit organization called Community Health Ed that aims to deliver location-specific information about healthcare resources to different communities throughout the United States. So many people, A, don't have accurate information about, like, accurate scientific information about medical issues as we've seen throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. How it's, like, helped me is it's helped me develop my interest in public health and express my interest in public health. Like, I'm... Debating right now whether to do potentially an MD or an MD and an MPH, Masters of of Public Health, and expressing my interest in public health through an organization like this and and sort of fledging out all of my interests in that general area through extracurriculars like that, that was really helpful because as we've covered in this 30 minutes medicine is really really complicated there's so many overlapping issues there's the biology there's the social demographics there's the politics there's the economics of it and there's so many avenues that you can take so i think in college exploring all of those avenues through research and th- research clinical and leadership opportunities was really helpful for me Right now, I'm doing research at Boston Children's. That primarily to clarify my interest in in research versus, yeah. As as I was saying before, I'm trying to figure out the role that I want research to play in my career. The medical school cycle is so weird. In order to apply, you have to start applying in June of the of like two years before. So you apply two years in, before. Yeah. So you have apl- like wow. a year and a half before you would expect to matriculate. So like. I'll be applying this coming June, and then interview the entire next year, and then attend the next year. Following that, once you do medical school, then you'll do you'll apply to and and do a residency in your given field of choice. So, like if I want to do pediatric neurosurgery, that would be a seven year residency, followed by typically people do fellowships to specialize in specific disorders. Like if I want to specialize in hydrocephalus and pediatric congenital um neurological conditions i would probably do a fellowship which is a more specialized training on a specific set of diseases
0: thank you so much paul for joining us i loved hearing your insight and i think this will be really helpful to listeners entering the medical field thank you all for listening and please be sure to follow our instagram at InspireMePodcastOfficial podcast official and stay tuned for episode two thank you guys so much for joining us